All right. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. It's Pastor Lars here. Uh, welcome to my Thursday morning live stream Bible study as I'm focusing on the season of Lent on understandings of Jesus' death on the cross. A quick two-second apology that took me a few minutes to get going today. I had a meeting and uh, technical things, but we're up and ready right now. So I'm going to continue going on this theme that I was looking at uh, last week, that I started last week, probably be a fair amount of repetition uh, and overlap, but I, I want to continue exploring what does Jesus' death on a cross mean? How do we understand it? How do we understand its purpose, the significance, uh, what it means for us? How did people in the Bible understand it? Uh, kind of how did the tradition go? Uh, I've said before that there's a sort of stock phrase that gets used that is taught to most of us is that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And that, that phrase has a lot of loaded meaning. It's got a lot of loaded definitions and understandings to it. There are many ways to understand why Jesus died. And, and again, the autobiography of it is that I spent countless hours obsessing about trying to figure out how Jesus' death on a cross led to forgiveness of sins. And so it led me to really explore this topic and then to understand that there's sort of a, I guess you'd call it a traditional or a more common understanding that is actually not the only way, that there's many ways to look at it. And the sort of common understanding that uh, God the Father is angry at humanity because of sin and has to, has to punish everybody for that sin that we inherit with eternal hellfire. Uh, and the only way that humanity could be saved from this en masse eternal hellfire is for somebody else to step in and pay the price in order to placate, to propitiate that wrath of the Father that he can't possibly just let go of himself. And so Jesus says, Father, I'll take the punishment. And so he steps in and on the cross, he gets punished in the way that sufficiently punished for the God the Father to go, ah, I'm not angry anymore. I guess I won't let make him go to hell, but only if they really truly understand and believe that the sacrifice itself was good enough. And that's kind of the traditional understanding. I know there's people who will come and say, uh, Lars, you're caricaturing it. Yes, I'm, there's some simplifying. But that's the basic gist of it. God the Father's angry and he's going to punish everyone. Someone has to step in and take the punishment. So God is sort of punishing himself because he couldn't just forgive sins. Well, we're going to deep dive this one a little bit today. Getting into the Bible, we're going to get into the Bible, we're going to go back to Genesis, we're going to walk through some of the Bible books, uh, and we're going to look at some of the, the ideas behind this uh, and see what it says. So, uh, so the theory I explained to you is called substitutionary atonement, right? Jesus is a substitute and his substitution atones, it makes us one. Uh, so it's, it's, atonement's kind of hard to understand in a normal setting, but you, you have to see it as sort of you've wronged someone 
and now you have to do something to make up for it. Uh, somebody has said it's at one meant. Uh, that's a nicer way of putting it. It's, it's paying a price, right? You have to pay a price for a wrong. Well, where does the theory go? Where does it start? The conventional theory uh, goes all the way back to this idea of original sin. It got its most, should I say, fullest explanation under St. Augustine back in the 400s. So it took a while from Jesus' death till the early church started really putting like real technical definition on it. So it started filling out. So you've got about 400 years till it really started looking in this way. And this idea of original sin that I think a lot of us in our modern world find a little bit kind of, we, we struggle with, right? We're born bad, we're born evil, uh, we're born with some sort of weird genetic trait that's been passed on to us and uh, it forces us to act in bad ways and we are uh, guaranteed to be punished for it. Um, it all seems a little bit unfair, like if, there's, if, I, if I'm stuck with this and I can't get rid of it, why am I punished for it? Uh, but it and so where does it go? Well, let's go back to, uh, before we get going uh, a little bit, let's look at some of the different ways that Jesus' death has been understood. We'll give you a little fade here. And there we go. Uh, wait, I wasn't going to start with the... Uh, yeah, and so here's some of the common ways that it's been looked at. Uh, when you look at sort of the death of how it were, uh, Jesus' death, the, in the Gospels themselves, these are the different ideas that you usually get. Um, that Jesus is... Uh, is he a political martyr? Is he a prophet, like one of the Old Testament prophets who got executed? Because that was actually, that actually happened, uh, that was actually fairly common, uh, that the Old Testament prophets would get uh, executed uh, for what they did. And there was never talk of the Old Testament prophets in some way buying off God's wrath. That was never understood as a part of their mission. Was that what Jesus was? Is he a moral example? Uh, you know, this is the life we should lead. Uh, the follow Jesus leads to death. That's just part of what, um, that's what the, a true living is. Um, or is it necessary for a, a execution? Is that how it has to be? And um, so these are, there's different views even in the Gospels that you have by itself right there. And um, where do we get these ideas? Well, if you go back and I'm not going to throw up Genesis here, but you've got, you got to go back to the book of Genesis. Way back to the book of Genesis. What happens? You have the story of the fall, right? You have the story of the fall. Let me see if I can I'll get rid of that and fade it. It's just me operating it again. Go back to the book of Genesis. What's the story? God creates Adam and Eve. This is in the second creation story in chapter 2. This is not the one with light and day and let there be light. This is the second one. And the second one, God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in paradise. And in paradise, there's the knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of eternal life. And they're told not to eat from those two trees. And Adam uh, then gets a partner, Eve. And the two of them live in this paradise with these rivers and, and running through it. And it gives you a description. And they live in this great paradise. And isn't it wonderful? And then we know how the story goes, right? A serpent, it doesn't say Satan, a serpent 
uh, goes and comes and talks to Eve and says, basically, God's been duping you. The, the, all you have to do, this tree isn't, eating from that tree isn't going to do anything to you. It'll just give you knowledge. God's hiding it from you. And so Eve goes and eats the apple, and then she gets knowledge of good and evil. It isn't just knowledge per se. It's knowledge of good and evil. So it's sort of a moral knowledge. Now she understands right and wrong. And then gives the apple to Adam, and Adam eats the apple. And then the two of them now realize what right and wrong is. And then suddenly they're ashamed of being naked. And God finds them and kicks them out of the garden. Right? We, know that, we know that story, right? And so they're sent out of the garden. And their punishment now is that childbirth will be painful. And Adam will have to work really hard to till the soil. That's how the story goes. Um, and it's interesting when you look at that story that, first of all, yes, the serpent is not Satan. It, uh, nowhere does it say the serpent is Satan. It just says it's a talking serpent. That was read into the text later by people who want to support the idea of there being a Satan in the Old Testament. Uh, they make this serpent into Satan. It doesn't say that. Secondly, when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, there's no language of sin doesn't talk about sin. It wasn't like they, they didn't know what sin was and now they knew what sin was. It doesn't use the word sin, even though the Old Testament is chock full of the word sin. So what they have is sort of a moral knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily say now they are sinful. You have to kind of read that into it. Third, it does not say now Adam and Eve are bound for hell. It doesn't say they were cast into hell. It says they were just cast out of the garden to now they're in a place where they have to work for their food. And so how does one get from that story to then, well, to then the classical understanding that Adam, when he, when he ate that apple, then sin entered the world. Um, though interesting in Genesis, it doesn't say that Adam and Eve really did any change their behavior. It just says that before they didn't know it was wrong. So, uh, so the classical understanding is Adam ate that apple, sin entered the world, so now they were cast out of the garden in a, that is the fall, and because of the sin that they got when they ate it, now, uh, now they're condemned to hell. Well, you want to know what else is not in the Old Testament? Hell. There's no hell in the Old Testament. Anywhere, beginning to end, there's no hell. Um, so this creates an interesting sort of theological problem uh, for the classical understanding of atonement, which is, uh, how come never in the Old Testament does it say that humanity is going to be punished with eternal hell for sin, which of course is now passed on from person to person uh, through sex, right? That's, and because we're always out of the garden, we all have this knowledge now, the knowledge is inherited that was one of the things August, St. Augustine in the 400s loved to talk about, how it was inherited. So now sex becomes the tool of spreading sin. And you can clearly see where this is headed, right? Therefore, sex becomes sort of by contact a, a, an inherently sinful act. Or people would say that. Augustine didn't say sex was inherently sinful. But it clearly was the way that sin was transmitted. And yet, in the Old Testament... There is, no, there is no hell, and there is no sort of inherited sin. There is no hell. So how did they deal with sin in the Old Testament? 
In the Old Testament, when you did sin, what you would do is you were wrong with God in this life. In this life, you were wrong with God. And to get right with God in this life, you would go and sacrifice an animal. And the animal sacrifice was a way of demonstrating your repentance, demonstrating your change, more than just saying, uh, oopsie, God, sorry. Right, we all kind of, I, I tell the story of the kid I remember who was told uh, when I was younger, he said, you gotta say sorry. You know, you hit him, you gotta say sorry. And so he, he somehow connected the dots and went, sorry, sorry, sorry. And he figured as long as he said the word sorry after every time he hit you, he got a free pass. And then he said, well, no, that's not really, you're not really sorry if you're doing it again, right? So part of the idea with the animal, the whole animal sacrifice thing is, especially for agrarian people where animals were extremely valuable, it was a way of uh, giving something up that was valuable to you to demonstrate that your repentance, that your change was real, that you really were sorry, that it wasn't just words. And that would put you at one with God in this life. Uh, it did, there's never any talk in any of the talk about sacrifices of sacrifices having the ability to save you from hell. Because remember, hell doesn't exist in the Old Testament. So it was a way of getting you right with God. And, uh, uh, and, and that was it, right? And that was it. And to pile it on even more, the whole notion of animal sacrifice as something that would get you right with God was not something that was universally accepted in the Old Testament. In fact, the prophets, all those prophet books that come after the first five books that talk about sacrifice. So the first five talk about animal sacrifice, all the rest of them uh, don't prescribe sacrifice. In fact, most of the rest of the Old Testament is very critical of sacrifices. And it will say, God will say, I abhor your sacrifices. What I want you to do is change your behavior. Love, do kindness, love justice, walk humbly with your God. I didn't get that right. Uh, mercy, justice, walk humbly with your God. But that's the point, I'm blanking on this, uh, that what the prophet said was you don't need animal sacrifices, you just need to change the way you live, and you need to change things like economic and political structures so they don't oppress the poor. If you do that, the prophets say over and over, if you do that, now God will restore your fortunes. There's never any talk of this having anything to do with life after death. Uh, but in a sense, you can kind of see the appeal, you know, the appeal that uh, adding a hell does, right? Because if there is no life after death, then if I'm wrong with God, then, and God is just, then there should be a punishment for me in this life right? If I don't make the sacrifice, if I don't make the repentance, uh, it, you know, if I'm an unrepentant, horrible person, and um, then, and there's no hell, there's no heaven and no hell, then what, then, then where does God come in and make justice? Then justice has to happen in this life, which, you know, you'll get into the, you know, there's parts of the Bible that will struggle with this question. You know, why is it that some horrible people live perfectly happy lives and some very virtuous people seem to suffer misery? It doesn't seem to answer that question. But when you throw in an afterlife, now, now that meanie, you know, the Joseph Stalins of this world who, who you know, kill millions of people 
and die comfortably at home of old age with no great tragedy happening to him. Don't worry, it doesn't mean God's unjust, it just means he's going to get his punishment after death, right? It, wrong, it, it writes all the wrongs, it, it solves all the equations, right? But in the Old Testament, there's no attempt to solve that. There's no solution. There just isn't a heaven and hell. Your sacrifices were just to get you right with God. And again, the good portion of the Old Testament isn't even, doesn't even agree with the notion of animal sacrifices. So the whole sacrifice concept is kind of iffy to begin with in the Old Testament. Uh, but so, uh, well, let's move on. Uh, let's move on to the Gospels. And um, again, let me give you my little graphic here. No, no, wrong. There we go. Okay. So now we move on to the Gospels. What are we going to talk about in the Gospels? In the Gospels, if you just had the Gospels and not the letters that came after it, these are the only kind of ways of understanding what Jesus' death would have meant. Because Jesus himself never uses the words, uh, I am going to die for sin. He doesn't say I'm dying for sin. He doesn't say I'm, I'm dying to propitiate the Father's wrath. I'm, he doesn't say I'm dying to save people from hell. Uh, he doesn't say that, ever. All, he, all we get in the Gospels about Jesus' uh, self-understanding of the cross is that it is necessary. And he says that over and over. It is necessary. And so it's clearly he sees it as having an importance, an importance so much that he's worth going through the most horrible thing a person can go through. But he doesn't answer the question in a form that most of us would like, which is a nice paragraph of explanation of why is it necessary? Why is it necessary that the Son of Man die? And he says it's necessary that the Son of Man die and be raised. But why die in that way? Why go through this whole torture thing? I mean, if it's just necessary that you die so that you can be raised, why not just go and do like last temptation of Christ? Go marry Mary Magdalene, move off to the country, you know, have a family, and when you die of a heart attack at 80, God raises you again. And then, essentially, you've died to be raised. Why does it have to happen in that way? Well, Jesus' so disciples and those who are with him, you know, they followed him and they were told it was necessary. I think a lot of them weren't sure they believed it until they saw it happen. But then they saw it happen and they were all just left standing there, staring at Jesus, wondering what's going on. I mean, assuming they were there at the cross, which most of them weren't. But after Jesus died, I mean, Jesus died, now, now what's the point? What did we follow him for? What was all this, what did we do all the work for? Why bother? What's to be gained from all this suffering? And so they would have been left with, remember, they were all Jewish, and, and they were all Jewish, so they didn't believe in a hell. So, what could Jesus have been for those first disciples? Again, he was a political martyr, right? People stand up for political causes and die all the time for them, right? Um, he was another prophet that was executed, and Jesus did make some references to that. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets. 
And it was pretty well understood in Judaism that people who spoke truth to power and called people to repentance usually did get killed. Uh, so that could have been a, a, an instant way of, sort of a, a way of understanding him. Again, they might ask, is this the path that really means, you know, Jesus says, you must take up your cross and follow me. So is the way to salvation, I have to die? Um, or again, is it necessary for resurrection? I have to die to be raised, right? Um, but that's kind of what you're left with. Because again, if you're not, if you're looking at, at Jesus' death and you don't have that framework of an afterlife with a heaven or a hell and this nice, this clean, all or nothing split. If you don't have that, that's what you're left with. So when we look at the Gospels, when we look at the Gospels, uh, you got to remember that. Um, that Jesus' death pretty much left everyone with a whole bunch of questions. Tons of questions. And the Gospels end right about there. You have stories of Jesus coming back. You have stories of what he does in the resurrection. Right? But you don't, he still, even after, he's, even after the resurrection, does not give an answer and say, this is why I died. In fact, it's been a common belief in a lot of Christianity that the whole point of the death was the resurrection. That, you know, that the resurrection was how death was conquered and now we have access to new life. And that's mostly, again, really simplifying it, the Eastern Orthodox understanding for centuries, that Jesus' death, death was really about conquering death and bringing resurrection to the world. It wasn't about propitiating an angry uh, father who just couldn't possibly let go of his wrath. That's not the understanding. And so I think things would look very different if we just, if our Bible just stopped at the Gospels, even if it just stopped the Gospels and Acts. Because even Acts, which goes on after Jesus' death, there's still not that talk about propitiating wrath. It's death and resurrection, and now there's resurrection. Turn from your sins, right? Peter will say, turn from your sins and get baptized. And he doesn't say, believe that Jesus' death is a sufficient propitiation for the wrath of the Father and get baptized. He says, change your behavior. So he's still speaking like a prophet. This is still about how you change your behavior, get baptized. That's what we would be left with, which is a very interesting idea. And I've heard other people say that, you know, what would, what would Christianity look like if we didn't have all those letters in the New Testament after the Gospels and we just had the Gospels and we just had to, you know, sort of see that? I think we would still be struggling with it. But I don't think we would be using that kind of language of the classical, you know, there wouldn't be this propitiating wrath stuff. It wouldn't be in there. Okay, so we've got an Old Testament with no hell. We've got a Gospels that has little or no hell. Uh, how then do we get, how then does Jesus' death become all about keeping us out of hell? Well, let me Now we get the epistles. The epistles, epistle just means letter. All those books after, most of them are letters. A good portion of them are written by the apostle Paul. Then another good portion of them are written by people who then signed Paul's name as if they were Paul. 
And then there's a few whose authors we just don't know. But they all came later. Paul's are the earliest. Uh, we're thinking, you know, Paul was probably writing this sometime before 60 AD, uh, somewhere between Jesus' death, 30, 60, maybe, you know, in the 40, 50 AD range for a lot of them. Uh, the other ones, as you get farther and farther into the New Testament, those they think were written even a lot later, 50, 60 years after. So there's a good chunk of time that happens between Jesus' death and resurrection and people in the New Testament writing about what the cross means. It's a good chunk of time there. And where do they get this? Well, in the epistles, this is where you start getting explanations for Jesus' death. And some are kind of vague, and some are very clear. For example, um, you start getting the first language of this substitution. You know, he was the punishment for our sin. He took, he took the, the, the burden of sin upon himself. Um, or you get this sacrifice language. Jesus is the sacrifice. It's no longer taking a sheep to the altar and sacrificing the sheep to get one with God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the sheep that was brought to the slaughter to pay the sacrifice for our sins. That's where you start getting that language. And the victory over death language is still very much in there. So it's not entirely, the New Testament isn't entirely consistent on this, contrary to what some want you to believe. Any theological system or theory is really sort of like piecing together a, a, a nice story from little bits and pieces, you know, and we all do it. It's not necessarily a bad exercise because as people we have to sort of at some point decide what we're going to believe and what we're going to follow and where we're going to put our foot down. And, but when you try uh, these kind of theories about this is what Jesus' death meant, means you're kind of picking and choosing things and you're piecing them together and you're filling in a lot of blanks and you're a lot of times reading things into things that weren't there, such as making the serpent into Satan. It's the epistles that gave us the substituting for the Father's wrath stuff. Uh, so, now let's start looking at some of these verses. Let's look at some of these passages here. Uh, all right, Romans. Romans 5. The first little hints we get at the language of wrath and sacrifice come in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's Paul's last letter that he wrote, at least of the ones that we have in the New Testament. So Romans comes first in the order of books, uh, but it's the last one he wrote. Why is it the first one? Because it's the biggest one. And when they were compiling the New Testament, in terms of figuring out scroll length, it was easier to start with a big one and then keep doing smaller ones on down so that you'd make sure you didn't have uh, a book that had to get cut in half. It was just a way of making sure you didn't run over. Uh, kind of a boring practical reason. But Romans may be the first order. It's the last one Paul wrote. And um, so at this point, Paul's already been out there planting churches. He's been out traveling. He's been experiencing things. He's been writing letters and he's been thinking about this. And so by the time you get to Romans, you start to get much more of what looks like a theology, much more systematic. So let's look at Romans 5 here. 
It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. There we go. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. See, if you want to write a classic atonement theory, this one lays it out pretty darn close, doesn't it? Um, uh, and the language is pretty darn close to the whole, to the, to the stuff. This is one of the first times that you start seeing the language of wrath in the Bible, though. That wrath that's so pivotal to this whole theory. So, let's walk through this just a little bit. Um, Christ died for the ungodly, right? Because if you, really, if you really are godly and righteous, there's no need to die for you, right? You're, you're, you're saved, essentially. You're good with God, I don't need to. I mean, that, and that's consistent with Jesus, you know. The healthy don't need a doctor. You know, he said that. Um, but God proves his love for us in that while we were sinners, he died for us. So now you've got sinners and die. Died for us. Combining that language, right? Um, much more surely than now we've been justified by his blood, we're not justified because God chooses to justify us if we forgive. We are justified by blood. There has to be that in-between. We can't just go from God, please forgive me, and God says, great, I'll forgive you. There has to be something in between because remember, the price has to be paid, right? We are justified by the blood. We will be saved through him from the wrath of God. So this is Paul introducing a whole new language that didn't really exist. is isn't like God was never wrathful before, but God's wrath was never about, um, you know, a sort of a punishment. But here's another thing to notice very carefully when you read this. There's still no talk about hell. There's still no talk about hell. The word hell does not appear in this theory. In this whole passage, you read right there, there's no hell. What are we saved from? Death. And that's a little different. And I think it's a, key, it's a key difference to understand that even if you believe Paul's, the, the Apostle Paul's understanding that God was wrathful and that somebody had to pay a price for that wrath, the outcome of him paying the price isn't heaven, it's resurrection. The punishment, if you can call it that, is death. So your choice is not an eternal separate plane of heaven or an eternal separate plane of hell. Your choice is a new life or death. That's absolutely critical in looking at the New Testament. 
we tend to read that word death and we read into it because we've had centuries of theologians and preachers saying this that when we read the word death we are to think oh yeah a literal place where a literal personified devil stands there and you know punishes people with fires and pitchforks and all these kind of things we've been conditioned to read that into it Paul doesn't talk about eternal punishment and hell he just talks about death and that's one thing where no matter how much you get into substitutionary atonement when you read the New Testament it's it's very 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 little that talks about anything that talks about sort of a hell your choice is almost always death or resurrection which means that Joseph Stalin Hitler whoever they're not according to the Apostle Paul they're not in a separate plane of existence where their disembodied soul is being eternally tormented uh, they're just dead that's it so Richard Dawkins Ricky Gervais Sam Harris whoever I don't believe in no God there is no God you guys are all stupid matter is all there is etc etc they don't go to hell for that they just die that's it which is exactly what they think they're gonna get and what they want right I'm just gonna die then I'll disappear into nothingness and it'll be all meaningless and worthless it won't make any difference live it up while you got it that's what they want that's actually good they're gonna get exactly what they want if you read this as is because they you know they have no time for Jesus right but it's uh, so so the wrath <laughs> the wrath is basically God withholding resurrection from you you gotta think of it you gotta remember it that way and when I think of it that way there's a lot of hope in it for me and in that message that I think the world needs to hear it isn't sort of the universalist message of you know there is in fact a literal heaven where a disembodied soul goes to which is a separate plane of existence where a disembodied soul goes to but everybody goes there that's the universalist answer right everybody goes there Hitler and Stalin are there too so when you die you get your harp Hitler has his harp Stalin has his harp Putin will have his harp everybody has a harp we're all good everybody goes no matter what no matter what and Richard Dawkins doesn't want to spend heaven with Jesus he's gonna be there anyways okay um, which makes me wonder well that doesn't that make heaven a punishment I mean if Dawkins wants to die just let him die you know otherwise if you're forcing it on him against his will then even a good thing forced on you is still a punishment right so this is what Paul is setting up though and he's also setting up as you notice this let's start in verse 10 this idea that humanity itself is on God's bad side for if while we were enemies we were enemies how did we become enemies of God right all of us every one of us enemies not just God's not just disappointed we're enemies Wow that's really strong we were reconciled through the death of his son there we go reconciled through his death um, how well somehow the death must have taken away the wrath right um, and having been reconciled you know 
will be saved by his life. So we're reconciled through his death, saved by his life. That's an interesting phrase too. Saved by his life. Does that mean saved by his resurrected life or saved by living a life like his? You know, I like to think that Jesus' teachings and his way of life are what we're really all about. Um, that and not to downplay that and make everything an end game about whether you go to heaven or hell. And I, I've said this many times, I'll say it a million times more. If an eternal plane of heaven and an eternal plane of hell are what it's really all about, if, if they really truly exist, then really nothing else matters. Then that is really, you know, eternal punishment. You think about that, that's horrific. So really, Nothing else matters except making sure that you don't get the eternal punishment. Which means it doesn't really matter how I live my life. The only question is, what is the bar that I have to get over to get out of hell? And because we've taught this as a church, the secular world, which has become secular gradually, but they started asking this question. Well, if I'm not worried about hell, and why do I need church? Why do I need Jesus? I'm not going to hell. And, and we didn't have a good answer for it because we'd so downplayed Jesus' life. We'd so downplayed any need to cha actually change our behavior and what we do. We had downplayed any value that Jesus' life has for enriching our lives and enriching our world. It all just became, the end game was the only thing that matters. It's a little bit like running a race, right? Does it really matter, you know, if you have, does it, really, does, does it really matter at the end of the day what kind of shoes you use? No, you decide what kind of shoes based on whether you're gonna get past that, that line, right? You're gonna get over the line. And if you don't, you think you're gonna get over that line really easy, then, and you can't lose, then why bother running? I mean, it really, it really in essence, makes faith almost not important. And so that's part of the thing that I think is done. I don't think Paul saw it as that much of an endgame. I think he was, he saw Jesus' death and resurrection as now, yay, look everybody, now there's resurrection, there's an eternal life. God's, Jesus is going to come again and he's gonna make this new world, like the, make the world new, like the Garden of Eden again all over. And we're gonna have an eternal life isn't that exciting? I gotta go out and tell people about this. And so he went out to tell people about this. Did he believe that when we do horrible things, we get on God's bad side? Absolutely. But I don't, I don't get the sense in reading Paul's authentic letters that he ever believed in a disembodied hell. He, he, he wasn't about the end game, and I think he was, and so he was very much about how we live our lives. And I think his thoughts will change from his earliest letters to his later ones, because in the very beginning, it was just hold tight, don't do anything stupid, Jesus is coming. By the time you get to Romans, now he's kind of given up on the idea that Jesus is going to come again in his life. So now we're not in world's going to end mode. Now we're into, all right, now we got to start thinking about how we're going to live. I don't think Paul was an endgame thinker as much as even he believed in this. I think he looked at this as, isn't this really great news? Isn't this really great news? You know, that we've solved this problem of God being mad at us and solved this problem of trying to earn, God, you know, or earn our place with God 
Jesus came in and showed a new way. But you've got to remember with Paul. Paul never met Jesus, and he never read the Gospels, and he didn't hear any of Jesus' teachings. He might have heard some of it secondhand, thirdhand. You know, he met some disciples. We know that. We know he met disciples. So he might have gotten some teachings that way. But in all of Paul's letters, he never talks about the Good Samaritan. He never talks about the kingdom of God. He never talks about healing or curing anyone. All Paul knows, basically, is Jesus came to him and said, Stop persecuting me. And then Paul realized there's eternal life, and he built everything on that. He didn't build it on, let's follow Jesus' teachings. So he has to try, he is essentially building a system with a very small amount of information. So even there, so here we go. While we were enemies, again, really strong, really kind of harsh rhetoric, um, we were reconciled through the death of his son, much more surely than having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we boast through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's good news. What did we receive? Escape from hell? No, reconciliation. Therefore, this is where you start to get the admin eve. As sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. Bing, bing, bing. There we go. There's original sin for you. Right? This is Paul's opinion. Right? So Paul reads back into Adam and Eve sin, a word that doesn't appear in that story. Right? Notice that Paul doesn't say knowledge of good and evil. Sin entered the world. So knowledge is sin? Or, or, or you know, are we to believe that once you know what's wrong, you are expected to be perfect? Right? I think you'd probably agree with that. But that, this is where it's starting to come from. Paul's starting to build this case right, of a fall. Adam, with Adam and Eve came sin. With sin came death. Right? Well, how does sin lead to death? Right? We do bad things. How does sin have to lead to death? It's because somebody has to make you die. God has to make you die. Sin leads to death. Ah, and so, uh, so, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Right? It's almost, again, it's, it's infection. It's kind of infectious language, right? Disease language. It's spread. It's a trait that you have. It is spread. They talk about, it, they talk about sin like it's this sort of a, like it's a disease. They don't talk about it as actions. They talk about it almost like it's a genetic thing. And I think that's what our world is recoiling from so much, this idea that I'm genetically predisposed bad. My own two cents that I'll give you on this is, I've tended to look at, I, I shirk, obviously, from this notion of a genetic predisposition towards evil. But I also shirk from what I think is a very naive view of humanity that says that we're all basically just good people trying to do good things, but occasionally we mess up. And I think that implies that A, we all, there is a thing called good, we all know what it is, we all want to do it, and the only reason we don't do it is because either the world is unfair and doesn't give us good choices, or we just slip up, you know? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ice skate, I'm doing my best to stand up on my ice skates, but I slip and fell. I know what I should be doing, I should be going straight, but I slipped and fell. 
And I just don't think you can look at human history for 10 minutes and come to the conclusion that everybody is inherently good. You know, you look at human history and it's raping and plundering and pillaging and killing and killing. And, you know, I, I was watching a thing on the Sumerians, you know, down in southern, what's now southern Iraq. They built a civilization starting in the 5000s BC. You're talking 7,000 years ago. And there's stuff that goes, we have, we have archaeology stuff that goes even earlier than that. But in their carvings, in their own carvings, they depict slavery um, and horrific abuses of people. Just in, insane barbarism. You know, cutting out body parts and all these forms of torture. And then they wrote it in their own records. All sorts of exploitation of people underpaying, slave laborers, and of course the brutality is necessary if you want to get people to work for nothing, if you want to get people to be treated cruelly, you have to threaten them with even a greater cruelty. But what, the fact that they kept having to do it all the time must mean that they, they drove people to such a level of desperation that they decided to risk it. Um, but that's, I mean, that's going back to the very first human cities being built. You know, we go before that, they started digging up archaeological records of uh, this group called the Yemnaya. And they're a group in what's now, I guess it would be southern Russia, roughly north of the Caspian Sea. Uh, an ancestor of what we now call Indo-European uh, people. And they were the first people to learn how to domesticate a horse. Well, once they figured out how to ride on a horse, now when they attacked other villages, they were coming at them from a high position and a high speed, they demolished the opposition. And one of the anthropologists said he was uh, studying and he found all sorts of evidence, <laughs> evidence of women being raped and taken captive uh, and enslaved. I'm like, great. So now we're in the 7,000s 7, BC. What's the first thing people do when they get a new power? They abuse that power. I can't look at human nature and say, that I think we are intrinsically good, and if we just cleaned up society a little bit and acted a little kinder, you know, we could solve this. I think that is incredibly naive. So where I will agree with this idea of original sin is that in the sense that we are born inherently selfish. That's kind of how our evolution has wired us. We are wired to survive and reproduce. We are wired to think about ourselves and our offspring. And we are sort of wired to, uh, grab power. Why? Because that is a way of securing more offspring, of securing survival. And so once you start throwing power dynamics in there, I don't think you end up with everybody's always good. I, I think human nature, the fact that, you know, the, there's so many stories of so many kings and emperors and all this stuff running through and just going into a city and killing every single last person. And none of the soldiers go, Hey, wait, dude, why, why are we doing all this raping? I think we should be kind to one another. Why not? There's got to be something in human nature. So I think there's a real value in us understanding uh, that there is a part of ourselves that has evolved in a very selfish, unkind way. It's who we are. And we need to be turned from that way somehow. And I don't believe we are capable of doing it purely through self-will. I, I really don't. I, I think we need a power beyond ourselves 
to rise above ourselves, to rise above our selfish evolution, to rise above our uh, self-centered programming, what I call that sin, I'm pretty okay with that. I just don't know if I want to talk about that as, you know, in the sort of cosmic sense that Paul does, you know. But I think Paul is right to look around the world and say, you know, once we as people started figuring out right from wrong and stopped acting like animals, once we had started getting a consciousness and an awareness of our actions, then absolutely we are more responsible for those. You know, I hold a person responsible for things I don't hold, say, uh, uh, an ape, right? You watch how apes treat each other, they're just horribly abusive. We humans aren't terribly better, but I don't hold the ape morally responsible in the same way because I'm not sure that ape is making a conscious decision of, well, let's see, I could beat up the rival and torture him, or I could be kind to him. The ape's just doing what's going to guarantee his survival. And if he wants to mate with the females, he has to exercise power over the females, and they, they can be brutal to the females, um, but he has to also exercise power and domination over the other males to keep them out. The second he loses his power, boom, he's out. Does that sound like human history? King rises up, he's got the power, builds his big empire. Second his empire is weak, everybody jumps on him. Wow, that's not a very nice way to live, and that's human history. Gobble, gobbling up and chopping up. So it, it, it's, it, there's a real darkness. Do I, do I believe, uh, let me shut off the channel here and fade this. Do I believe uh, that, again, that there is a sin inherent in us that we need Jesus to turn ourselves from? Absolutely. And I do believe that it was because of human sinfulness, because of power and greed and selfishness and domination and subjugation and injustice that Jesus was killed. But I think there's a, it's just critical to understand it's that wrath piece, that wrath piece. That's the struggle. Does God really, is God angry when God, when he sees, you know, people raping and plundering and pillaging? I have to believe God's angry. If God is, doesn't have some wrath at watching what Putin is doing in Ukraine right now, then I would question whether God has knowledge of good and evil. So I would expect God to have wrath. It's a little bit like that bumper sticker. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. You know, we shirk from God being angry, but would we really be okay with God just being chill about slaughter, blowing up maternity wards with missiles? I would want God to be angry. But I would want God to be angry at what we do, in a sense, not so much as what we are. And I would hope that God would provide us a path and tools to rise above that. Um, so, Romans 5. Let's do another one. Um, let's do another one here. Hebrews. So, you have the Apostle Paul. And he starts laying out his theory about atonement. Hebrews takes that ball and runs with it. And I mean runs with it. Here we go. Let's read through this. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the true form 
of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered? Since the worshippers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin, year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All right, well, I just want you to I'll leave this up, folks, before we jump to the next section. The argument here, to sketch it out, is that it, ha it has to do with the law, which is the 623 laws that are in the first five books of the Old Testament. That's called, that's called the law. That's churchy language for the law. And the, the understanding goes, if there's no law to tell us what's wrong, how do we know what's wrong? Well, God gave us the law, so now we know what's wrong. Now we know what to do and not do. So you can't say, oh, I just, I just didn't know. I had no knowledge. No, now you have knowledge. You have the law. And God spelled it out pretty, pretty strictly. And so the argument goes, if all I, all I had to do was to get, to get right was just to offer a sacrifice, I would just offer one and I'd be done. One sheep, go home. In fact, the argument goes, if they, they could have offered sacrifices way back then, and those would have counted forever. If that was good enough, if that was good enough to cleanse from sin. Now, it doesn't say buy off wrath in this passage. It, cleansing. So this is, t again, we're using kind of disease purity language, like sin is a, a, like a dirt on you, right? And so, uh, you know, you're cleansed of it which is interesting because that makes it sound like it's something almost on you. Um, I've heard of really bad youth pastors, you know, they'll take a, a piece of fruit or something and they'll cover it in dirt and say, this is like, this is you when you sin. But that's kind of the idea here. Uh, and so we would, all be, we, we would all be cleansed. The sacrifices would have worked and we would have been changed. But, right, he says, they kept having to do the sacrifices over and over. Why keep doing them over and over if you don't need to? So it's impossible for blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, which is by itself uh, what the prophets would have said. I abhor your sacrifices, God says in the prophets. I abhor the sacrifices. So the prophets are sitting here saying, yep, you're right. The sacrifices don't really take away sins. God wants more. But what is, the, what is the conclusion they make in Hebrews 11 through 14? We're going to jump to 11 through 14. And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since then has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So we're going way back into the sacrifice language. Why? You have to, one of the things about the book of Hebrews is we don't know who wrote it. We know it is ostensibly written for Jewish Christians, converts from Judaism who grew up around sacrifices, or at least the idea of it. 
we know that it is written after the temple was destroyed. So when the people are reading the book of Hebrews, they don't have a way to do an animal sacrifice if they wanted to, because the one place you're allowed to do animal sacrifices, which was the Jerusalem temple, just got knocked down, got set on fire by the Romans. So I don't have a place to do sacrifices. So it's a question, how do I get right with God now? If I can't do an animal sacrifice, well, why couldn't they just go back to the prophets and say, look, look what God has told you. Love justice, do kindness, walk humbly with your God. Why can't, couldn't they just do that? Follow Jesus's way and that is the way. You don't have to be making sacrifices. You have a much stricter way, which is to follow Jesus. No, no. They have to, they have, to have an answer to the sacrifice question. A sacrifice has to be made. The writer of Hebrews just couldn't get out of, the po out of his mind the possibility that God could save without some, again, some sacrifice having to be made somewhere. But let's look at what comes in between these two passages. What was left out? What was left out was some Bible proof texting. These are the Bible passages that the writer of Hebrews uses to buttress this argument. Consequently, says Hebrews 10.5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, see God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I, I kind of highlight, I, the italics are mine. That's right out of the prophets. Sacrifices you have not desired. Okay. So, again, the prophets are pretty consistent that God not only doesn't want sacrifice, but a lot of them are like, God never really, never really did want sacrifices in the first place. Which is interesting because the temple keeps getting destroyed and then they rebuild it and go back to doing sacrifices. And they just, they keep going back to it. It's like there's some appeal. It's like when the prophets say, you know, uh, follow God's ways, that's what God wants. It's like they can never quite accept that. It's like that's, it's like there's, that, that's, that's almost like that's too hard or doesn't answer it. That's, but that's what you get when you read this, right? I don't want the burn offerings. I don't want the sin offerings. See, God, I have come to do your will. Forget sacrifices. Do God's will. That's what God wants. Do God's will. Well, then you don't need a sacrifice, right? They're right. You don't need a sacrifice. You just need to do God's will. Well, this will be the thing that will start coming in, and the Apostle Paul will get into this of arguing, you can never do God's will enough just to propitiate the wrath. That becomes the question. How do I know if I've done enough goodwill? How do I know if I've done enough justice and kindness and mercy? How do I know? Well, if everything in life is an end game, again, about getting through those pearly gates, you need to know. Do I need to do work at the shelter once a week or three times a week? Do I, need to, do, do, do I need to never cheat on my wife or can I cheat once or twice and get away with it? I mean, this, this becomes a, a very important question. Do I have to follow every one of the Old Testament laws or can I cheat on some of them some of the time? How many can I cheat on before I get through? This is pass-fail, right? This is you're in a class and it's pass-fail. 
How do I know if I've got pass-fail? So that becomes the question. And so the answer then to that question isn't, look, God is gracious and merciful to those who follow his way. Don't sit, if you're obsessing about finding the number, there's probably a problem, which is usually what I always say. If you're trying to figure out what the minimal amount of sin is, of good deeds that you can get away with is, then you're asking the wrong question and deep in your heart, you're wanting to not do good deeds, right? How much money do I have to give to the homeless before I go to hell? Well, you, you should be wanting to give money to the homeless, not trying to see how little you can get away with. If you're in a marriage and you said, how little do, can I love my wife and still not get divorced? You have a bad attitude problem that's going to doom your marriage, right? You're looking at it completely the wrong way. But that's the proof text. Here's another one, verse 8. When he said above, quote, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Again, prophets are with you. You're right. God doesn't want those sacrifices. Well, if God doesn't take pleasure in sacrifices, why does God still demand sacrifices? Okay, verse 9. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. Here we go again. I don't want sacrifices. I'm coming to do your will. Should that be enough? He abolished the first in order to establish the second. So he abolished the sacrifices in order to establish what? The goodwill? Sounds like it. Sounds like you don't need a sacrifice. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he takes that passage and then, again, puts into it. The Old Testament doesn't say somebody, there has to be a sacrifice. That's the writer of Hebrews drawing a conclusion that the verses he quotes doesn't come to. Because, again, they couldn't just say that God could forgive without somebody being punished. They, they just couldn't get there. Just, just couldn't imagine that. All right, let's fade. There we go. All right, so you can see here, my claim is that the writer of Hebrews is ramming into the texts the need for a sacrifice, whereas the Old Testament texts do not say that any sacrifice is needed. It's what we do. And I know this became the big issue for Martin Luther, and Luther, Lutherans throughout the ages have... Uh, you know, we've stuck pretty firm in this debate that got caught up in the 16th century um, about, quote, good works. And Martin Luther's sort of, he was obsessed about whether he was going to uh, go to heaven or hell and absolutely convinced that he was going to hell, this is how he grew up, if he didn't do enough, quote, good works. So like earning points, right? You do something good, you earn points. Now, in Martin Luther's day, most of those good works were not serving at the homeless shelter. They were things like saying the rosary, um, going to mass, doing a Hail Mary, making a donation. Um, they were more like religious piety good works. But he's obsessed. He's worried about this. Again, it's that bottom line. If there is an eternal, literal hell where your soul goes forever, how you go there or don't go there is absolutely important. And so one can't just rest comfortable in the notion that uh, God wants you to do his will and that us living our lives the best we can to do God's will is good enough and that you have to know, you have to know that measurement. 
You've got to know that exactly where that line is to know that you can get over it. And this obsessed him. It was a bigger obsession to him than it was to the other monks in his monastery when he was a monk, obsessing about this stuff. And I think, honestly, most of us people probably come down along some version of, you know, and maybe too much along the secular way of, I'm a good person, God's not going to condemn me for being a good person. I think that can be a little bit weak. You know, what does a good person mean? Um, is a good person means you're using your body as a human shield to prevent violence? Or does being a good person mean like, oh yeah, well, like, you know, I didn't kill anyone or anything. I think that can be kind of, kind of, there's kind of a lame version of that. But that is the conclusion you would get to. If all you had was the Old Testament, that's more, that's the conclusion you would get to. God wants you to follow the laws. Follow the laws. You follow the laws, you're in God's graces. That question of where is that bottom line, am I in or out, once you add heaven and hell, once you add a literal hell, that becomes everything that matters. And so then, then you can't just be happy with knowing that I'm doing my best to be like Jesus. You have, something has to tip that scale to give you that guarantee so that you can sleep at night knowing that it's enough. And so Martin Luther then came in reading Romans and said, see, that's right. It's not about the good works. It's about Jesus. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. And we're all still with it. But what I think most people don't understand about Luther is Luther wasn't saying, I believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God. That's what faith is. No. What Luther meant when he said faith was, I believe that Jesus' death on a cross was a sufficient enough punishment to buy off the Father's wrath. That's what faith is. Believing the punishment was enough. Not believing that God is loving, believing the punishment was enough because believing that Jesus was the thing that tipped the scale. The cross tipped the scale. We were maybe really good in hovering on this side of, on this side of, of uh, but we were still on the hell side. And so, you know, we're all tormented day and night. Oh my God, I'm gonna go to hell. Do I have to do more good? I'm gonna go to hell. And then the cross came and Jesus said, no, you're all on this side as long as you believe it. And I think Luther's, again, people will, I have colleagues who go, Lars, you're oversimplifying. Yes, I'm oversimplifying. But I'm also kind of critical of the fact that I think Luther was a product of his time and his own psychology and a fear that he had that most of us just don't have today and that I would argue isn't in the Old Testament and isn't even in Jesus. And this obsessive need to have to know exactly heaven and hell requires there to be something that, that makes that scale tip automatically. If I can't earn my way in, then we're all going to hell. Ah, you don't have to earn your way in. Jesus earned it for you, right? Um, has to be a sacrifice. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't, it, you didn't do sacrifices because God was saying, I know that after you say, stole your neighbor's donkey or cheated on your wife, and you've tried to make it right to your wife and you paid back the donkey and you, you know, cleaned up your act, that God would say, well, I, I don't know if that's good enough, so you better do a sacrifice to make up for the fact that you, that there might be a difference between your goodness and where you need to be. We sort of look at it mathematically, right? I stole the donkey, 
I bought my neighbor a donkey, the donkey might not have been quite as good, so there's a gap between the wrong I've done and, and me making it up for it, so the sacrifice fills the gap. That isn't how it works. You know, I stole the donkey, according to the sacrifice world, I stole the donkey, now I gotta make a sacrifice. I am expected to pay it back though. I, now I make a sacrifice, Poop. now I'm right with God, right? The prophets are the ones who came in to the whole sacrifice system and they noticed very early on a problem that's epidemic to sacrifice, which is if I can make a sacrifice and get right with God, then I don't have to change how I live, right? Party it up on Saturday, make a sacrifice on Sunday, I'm good, right? I can cheat on my wife all I want, all the live long day. Just go swiping through the tinder all week long, I'll just throw in a sacrifice, I'm good. And that's the danger that sacrifice cults do, is they, they, they provide that one thing you can do to make it all right. And the prophets would come down on this like a ton of bricks and say, you guys are offering sacrifices, but you're not changing how you live. You treat the poor like crap, and you're exploiting people and abusing people, you know, and then you think that by doing a sacrifice, God's going to be okay with it. No, I'm telling you, God's telling you, the prophet would say, that, that what you need to do is forget about the sacrifices, change what you're doing. Because sacrifices become a substitute for what you do. And I think that can become a thing even in Christianity. Jesus' sacrifice can become the substitute for me being accountable for my own life. And he died so I don't have to. He lived the good life so I don't have to. He sacrificed for the poor and the needy. He stood up to the empire. I don't need to. I'm good. I, not that I think that's what Paul was trying to say, but that's where human nature goes. By the way, I rebel against talk of sacrifice. Because I think it does, let, it does let us off the hook. Now I know what Luther would say. I'm a Lutheran. Luther would say, um, yes, you have faith, you know, you have faith that Jesus' sacrifice was a sufficient sacrifice. But if you, really, if you really love God and you have faith in him, you will want to do all those good works, right? You'll want to. It'll be an intrinsic motivation not a carrot and stick motivation. And I like the idea of it being an intrinsic motivation, but it's hard to say that it's an, to make anything an intrinsic motivation when you've got this end game here, right? So you're saying with one hand, Jesus died for your sins. If you believe it was a good enough death, you're not going to hell. To then for someone to say, well, now that I believe that, now I'm gonna go out and what? Suffer for third world children, huh? You know, it, it, it gets real easy to say, well, now that he did it, now that I don't. Okay, let's keep going. One last way that sacrifice was understood. There we go. One last way that sacrifice was understood in uh, the New Testament was this idea of conquering. And this is more the, again, the Eastern Orthodox idea of conquering death. Uh, so, Revelation 3. Listen, I am... Oh, wait. There we go. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you. 
and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let it, anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. All right. So the book of Revelation is often known for, you know, it's apocalypses and stuff and things blowing up. This is the classic one. Uh, as a kid, when I was a kid, the front of the sanctuary had a giant stained glass window with Jesus knocking at a door. And um, it's, it's a very iconic image, right? Jesus wants to come in to your life. Jesus wants to be a part of you and your family. Um, he, he's, he, he's right there. You don't even have to ask for an invitation, right? To the one who conquers, 21. Conquer, in the book of Revelation, is die. That's what conquer means. You conquer by dying, right? Because when you die, you are raised. So you conquer death. By dying, we are raised. And what Revelation is talking about is to the Christians who are facing uh, Roman persecution, stand up for Jesus and you'll probably die. But if you do, you will be raised, ergo, you will conquer. And so, in a large part of the book of Revelation is not to warn us about bad things coming. It's, in, it's an encouragement to the early Christians to endure extremely painful persecution in the way Jesus did often, sometimes literally the way Jesus did, sometimes literally Christians would be crucified, and to endure that persecution so that you can conquer death. And so there's a real sense here of the weightiness of it, right? Conquering is not a light thing. It's not a simple thing. It's not, it's not a flippant thing. If you take up Jesus' cross and follow him, following him is hard. Martin Luther didn't like the book of Revelation because to Martin Luther it was works. There's that idea again. It's people thinking that they can earn their way into heaven. You can't earn it. Only Jesus can earn it. Well, in Revelation, you have Jesus saying, you kind of can. <laughs> now, the price is high. You know, you want to earn it. You, the price is death. The price is torture. The price is being persecuted. And that theme goes throughout Revelation beginning to end. There is a way you can earn it. But... It's really, really, it's really hard. It involves your death. Um, and so Luther hated Revelation so much that he tried to keep it out of the Bible. Even though Revelation is full of a lot of the same sacrifice language that he liked, such as Jesus being a lamb on a throne. That's one of the images in the vision. Right? Jesus is a lamb on a throne. Well, what does a lamb do? A lamb is the sacrifice, right? So even in the book of Revelation, there's a belief that Jesus' sacrifice uh, brought resurrection. But it was a sacrifice for resurrection, not a sacrifice to buy off wrath. It's the buy off wrath part that doesn't exist in Revelation. Death and conquering. Again, that's an Eastern Orthodox thing. I'll leave you with an interesting little tidbit. Um, let me fade here. Oh, I realized I left myself in the corner. That's ridiculous. All right. A little tidbit here. If you go back to the very early Christian churches, 
um, the ones that were underground in tunnels, in catacombs, uh, meeting in, you know, people's houses. And you look at the paintings and the decorations they put on the walls. It's kind of interesting to notice this. The cross as a symbol was almost never used. What was used was they would depict stories of resurrection in the New Testament. So it would be Jesus raising Lazarus. It was Jesus being baptized. It was Jesus rising from the tomb. Um, these, were the, these were the stories that were depicted all over. The very first Christians were their understanding, as best we can gather, did not involve this propitiate wrath stuff, even though they had Paul's letter to Romans, even though they would have had that kind of language, what they lived by in their own lives was not with wrath, was not about wrath, it was about resurrection. It was dying to be raised. It was conquering death, which is one of those, that, those understandings of atonement. So, all right, I've gone really long. I hope it's been helpful um, to lay out some of these theories, to lay out the fact that in the Bible there are different understandings of it, uh, there are different ways of looking at it. It is, most, it is highly nuanced. And you, if you haven't figured it out, I'm not a big fan of the wrath stuff. But, uh, you know, we all look at these in different ways. So, again, I hope it's been helpful. I'm going to keep going next week. I'll hopefully jump into some other passages, be a little more specific on things at the cross itself. Um, and then it'll be, I'll keep going Thursdays at 1030 uh, through Lent. So, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, for this longer study, and I hope you all have a great week. God bless you in your spiritual journeys this Lent.